Welcome to What She Said on 105.9 The Region. I'm your host, Candace Sampson. Most of Ontario has moved into stage three, where we are expected to remain until a vaccine for COVID-19 has been found. We are also, and don't shoot the messenger here, just 24 weeks shy of Christmas. So what do you think the second half of 2020 is going to look like? That's the question I'm asking on Facebook today, so pull out your crystal balls and share your predictions with me on What She Said Talk on Facebook. For now, though, I've got some great interviews for you today with more incredible women. We're just never going to run out of those incredible women. So here's what's coming up. Women have more economic clout than ever before. In fact, they are on track to control nearly half the financial wealth in Canada by 2026. That's not so far away. They are also kicking financial advisors to the curb that don't address their specific concerns or needs as women. Dillis DeCruz from Meridian Credit Union joins me to discuss what women really want when it comes to investing their money. If you're like a lot of women in Canada, you downloaded TikTok while in quarantine or you've spent an inordinate amount of time on Facebook. There's no denying these are fun outlets and they allow us to connect with others. But at what price to our privacy? Kat Kood, an expert in cybersecurity and data privacy, joins me to share her thoughts on what you should keep and what you should definitely delete. And Brody keeps bringing the goods. And this week she shares her thoughts on one show you absolutely should avoid and several you'll want to carve out some time for. What's bluesing and why should you be doing it? Karina Odorico from Breville, Canada joins me to share the details on their new multifunctional kitchen appliance and why it deserves a piece of real estate on your counter. Living single is not a curse and it's definitely not an indicator of an unhappy life, despite what our society tries to tell us. For some, being single is a deliberate choice that allows them to live rich, fulfilling existences totally alone. Joan Delfatore has been writing about living single in a couples-oriented cult culture since 2014 and joins me to share some of her findings. Finally, who doesn't want to know what the future holds? Leia Zaidi is an awarding futurist and a senior associate at the Future Today Institute. She joins me to share some thoughts on what's next in our post-COVID world, the connection of climate change and future pandemics, and why you can compare what the world is going through now to a forest fire. Whew, it's a lot. So kick your feet up and join me for the next hour here on What She Said on 105.9 The Region. It's a new day, it's a new life for me, and I'm feeling good. Dillis DeCruz is the Vice President and Head of Wealth at Meridian Credit Union, where she leads a team of wealth advisors across Ontario who are focused on helping Canadians achieve their financial goals. Dillis has been in the financial services, services industry for 30 years, and as a single mother of three children, she is passionately focused on empowering women of all ages to take control of their financial well-being. Welcome to the show, Dillis. Always great to be here. It's good to have you back. I've missed seeing your face. Today, we're talking about kicking financial advisors to the curb, and this seems a little bit counterintuitive. <laughs> We're going to kick him to the curb. <laughs> so tell me, why, why, why are women in particular doing this? Yeah, so, you know, right now there is such a transfer of wealth happening with women. And I think let's just set the stage. You know, there's going to be by 2026, there's going to be about, uh, there's a 900 billion uh, worth of money that's being transferred from women to advisors because um, women are coming into money um, either through generational, you know, their parents are passing away 
or um, you know, their spouse passes away. I hate to say it, but women outlive men, and so there's this big transfer of wealth. And so, um, you know, there's this opportunity here. And as we look at it right now, uh, women aren't happy. There's been studies done, and women aren't happy with the level of service they're getting from their advisors. As and that number is as high as 87% of women are looking for a new advisor because they just don't feel. Uh, that they're getting serviced in the way that they want to. That's interesting. And is that because that that uh, is skewed through a male perspective? Do you feel so? They yeah, just that female touch. Yeah. Well, and and the thing is, is it's um, it's interesting. It's all. It's about emotional connection, right? And that doesn't mean that men can't emotionally connect. But historically, advisors will sometimes, uh, they're used to dealing with men. Uh, men have, in, and I'm generalizing, but quite often men are much more focused on the numbers, the return. Um, it's much more of a black and white versus really digging deep and having the conversations of where are you in your life? How are you feeling? And making it a safe space. And so I think historically, there's a lot of advisors out there still, by the way, Way that are very, very um, operate in that uh, braggadocio kind of way, you know, where it's like, oh, look at the returns I can get you and everything else. And so if advisors have not moved, male or female, uh, in the direction that uh, women, in terms of how they want to service, then they're going to lose. They're going to lose their, um, you know, their female clients because there are options out there. But interestingly enough, women also feel that they do not get approached by men advisors. You know, 50% of the time, they're saying, uh, I'm not getting approached by a male advisor. So, you know, there has to, we've been talking about this issue for years and, and it's still there. It's still there. Is that interesting? So, I mean, I wonder if that is because there's, you know, this perception that, you know, women don't make the decisions in, in that regard or right. have the wealth to consider it. Yeah, um, well, and, and it's funny you should bring that up, right? Because the numbers as high as 30% uh, of women in Canada are the breadwinners. So that number continues to climb. And, and as we all know, like women are, you know, outnumbering men in, um, in the professional schools, whether it's going in to be a doctor or a lawyer or a dentist, um, women and even engineering, right? The numbers are climbing and climbing, if not outnumbering. And so you will continue to have women uh, being the primary breadwinner and out earning their husbands. But despite that, the other interesting fact too is, is that um, within a year of, um, you know, uh, a woman's husband passing away, women are actually uh, changing advisors. Uh, within a year, 80% of women will change their advisor after their spouse has passed away. So regardless of, you know, uh, whether whether the women have, are, are, are out earning, they are coming into money and if they're not being looked after properly, um, you know, again, uh, they're, they're going to look elsewhere and go to an advisor and so they should, by the way. Well, I mean, it's a big, your money is a big thing, uh, yeah. you know, so obviously you have to have a trust, a relationship with somebody. So let's talk about choosing that right advisor then. Yeah. Um, how do yeah. you recommend women find the right advisor for them? Yeah. So whether you're married or whether you're single, I think your advisor has to pay attention to you. You know, I have a story right now where uh, a friend of mine through this pandemic, and she has a significant amount of money. She's married, by the way. Um, and uh, her, her father passed away. And um, she has significant money, money, money with an advisor for the last few years. She did not even hear from him during the pandemic. And when she called him, he took like days to respond, right? So in terms of how do you go about choosing, make sure you have to feel connected to your advisor. And if you go in and you feel that they're talking down to you, or they're using a lot of acronyms that you don't really get, um, then, you know, I, you know, ask them to explain it to you. And if they're not taking that time to, to explain it to you or they're talking down to you, then I think you gotta just say no. You gotta shop around for an advisor and interview people. You know, it's like, it's like a friendship, right? You're gonna be in it, you hope wanna be in, you want to be in this app for the long term with your advisor. And so you wanna make sure that you have a connection so that you can sit down and comfortably hear say, I'm, I'm concerned about this, right? You want to be able to be vulnerable with your advisor. If you're not, then, you know, it's the wrong relationship. So you definitely want to make sure they're accredited. That goes without saying. Uh, make sure they're accredited. And then really, how much are they getting to know about me? The conversation shouldn't be about them. 
It should be how much are they asking about me and really digging deep about what's important to me, my family, you know, my, my kids, my parents. They should be asking those conversations. To me, that's one of the biggest things uh, women need to look for. Yeah, I agree. So, you know, and especially when you're saying, you know, looking for that, that, um, that connection, I imagine right now with this pandemic, like we know that this is something that is disproportionately affecting women, this yes. pandemic right now. Yeah. And so I expect that the relationship with money is going to be much more emotional yes. in the next uh, little while for women. So that connection with somebody and, and again, you know, interviewing somebody is so important. Um, it's really, I think we think, you know, I know in the past I've thought that, um, you know, I wasn't the boss in that relationship, the financial advisor, but it's actually the other way around. Right. That's right. And if they're not engaging you in that relationship, like walk away and, and you don't want the old school condescending approach. Don't worry. I'll look after it. Don't worry. You're okay. Right? Like they need to take the time to understand what you're concerned about. Now, if you're married, here's what I, I really is so important. Women cannot abdicate the responsibility uh, for their financial situation because nine out of 10 women are going to have to manage their money by themselves at some point in their life. Um, and so, you know, go in with your spouse and, and, I have, you know, my peers, it's awesome because they meet with my advisors and they say to me point blank, and these are my, you know, VP, you know, peers, they say, we're not going with an advisor unless my wife's okay with them. And, and they're telling me too, that their wife is looking to see if the advisor's making eye contact with them. Right. So, um, it's really important that your advisor, if you're married, you are engaged in that, in those meetings with your husband, uh, and they're acknowledging you and not just talking to one person, but it really gets down to, am I feeling hurt? Am I connecting with the person? Can I trust this person? And can I share, um, you know, you know, what my, my deepest concerns are, uh, can I, can I really be vulnerable with them? That to me is the most critical because for me, the IQ is table stakes, right? I like to say the IQ is table stakes. It's the EQ and how are they making me feel? And that to me is the most important. So, you know, women definitely need to get involved and, and if the advisor that they have, let's say with their um, spouse or their partner is not there, then have a heart to heart with, with your spouse as well too, because God forbid something should happen in the spouse, then they're left with somebody who they can't connect with. And then they're going to leave actually. So. Exactly. So yeah. during this, so obviously, you know, nothing is normal in this current circumstances. Um, mm -hmm. But if people want to connect with you and Meridian, you know, how are you doing that right now? How are you facilitating those connections with your clients? Yeah, you know, it's been really interesting. And it's, it's nice to see from the wealth management perspective. Um, we have just adopted, and this is a general in the industry, and I think it surprised all of us in the industry how quickly we adopted to this whole new environment virtually. And so here you and I are doing a virtual video. Um, this is how we connect. Now, our, my advisors are back in the branches. So if people don't have the ability to Skype or do it virtually or not comfortable, then they can go into a branch. But if uh, I, I believe you're going to see much more of this virtual communication um, with your advisor. So either or, the choice is there. If you go on Meridian, our website on meridiancu.ca. Um, you can find an advisor near you, near you, but you have the option to go in person to branch or do it virtually. Okay, wonderful. Thank you so much for joining me today, Dallas. We're going to get all the links up on the video for this, awesome. and uh, I really appreciate you taking the time today. Always great. Nice seeing you, Candice. Bye. Take care. with Candace Sampson and what she said coming up on 105.9 The Region. Welcome back to What She Said with Candace Sampson on 105.9 The Region. Catcude is the founder of Binary Tattoo with a mission to help safeguard your data and protect your digital identity. Backed by two decades of experience in mobile development and software architecture, as well as a certification in data privacy law, CAT helps individuals and corporations better understand cybersecurity and data privacy. Welcome to the show, CAT. Thank you so much. So, you know, I mean, everybody's driven back into their home with this pandemic and technology, the use of technology, if, you know, we didn't believe it before, has just exploded um, even more. Yeah, for sure. 
So what are some of your top concerns right now for people who are at home and using all this technology? A lot of the issues right now are people used to be in buildings where there were IT departments and there were firewalls and there were a lot of safety procedures kind of set up around them from a technological perspective that's not there at home. So they've moved their technology, their workspaces, kids still doing school and things home, um, and they don't have the safety and security on home routers and maybe on the computers that they had when they were on in work offices. Yeah, because, you know, I think about government agencies right now, um, you know, like CRA and maybe a Family Responsibility Office and all of those things. Are they accessing my private information from their homes? They could be. So there are safe ways to access information and to transfer information. And most of them come through a VPN, which is a virtual private network. And a lot of companies will have their own tools. So if you work for a company and you've been sent to work from home and they tell you to use certain tools or certain ways to transfer documents, you need to use those tools. They are there for a reason. They might be a pain in the butt. They might be a little harder to use than what you're normally using, but you can't just send confidential documentation or privacy or any kind of that information through your Gmail account or through a regular um, account or even your router. So your, your router, it needs to be protected and needs to be updated so that someone can't intercept the information that's leaving your house. Okay. All right. So you talk about, you know, we recorded a longer podcast. I encourage everybody to go over and listen to that. It is uh, quite interesting, but you mentioned uh, that privacy is your responsibility. So what, how, what should, how should people take control of that in the internet? I think, that, well, the first thing everyone really needs to acknowledge is that all of these companies do not have your best interest at heart, right? The Facebooks really are not trying to connect the whole world, and Google isn't just there to provide the information when you need it. Um, these are obviously, we all know how much money these companies make, and they make that money from your data. So anytime you're using any service or any app, the default on all of the privacy settings are going to be in favor of the company. So the first thing you can do on anything is to check your privacy settings. Okay. You mentioned also, we talked about TikTok, which has just exploded in popularity. I believe now it's, it's, you know, it's Facebook, Instagram, and then TikTok, which just came out of nowhere. So what are the big concerns in and around TikTok? So TikTok is not a North American based app. It comes out of China. And in North America, we have numerous privacy regulations that ensure that companies, although we are giving them a lot of data, it ensures that they can't take certain data or they can't access other information on your device without your permission and your consent. TikTok doesn't have any of those regulations. So they are pretty much taking location and video and they're reanalyzing your video. Um, again, they're following you wherever you go. They could be turning on your microphone. And uh, from a North American perspective, we don't have control over that. So India as a country who has their own privacy act has now banned numerous Chinese apps, including TikTok and WeChat, which is one of the biggest apps in the world. Uh, India has now banned those apps from anyone living in India to be able to use them because of the sheer amount of data and privacy concerns that they have. That is, that's shocking to actually hear that, that, they, that it's been banned. So that means that they are stealing that information essentially then. Yeah, pretty much. So I, I like to say, like, again, I talked about it in the podcast. If you're, if you're wearing a lapel pin with a little spy camera on it and a microphone and all your information is going back to China on what you say and what you do and where you go, if you're comfortable with that and that's a good trade-off for you to be able to post your videos, then that's what you're doing. Uh, there is a high risk for kids, though, because, again, that video is being taken and being analyzed. Um, and it's also looking at who you're connected with on TikTok. Yeah. So we talked a little bit in the podcast about, uh, uh, you know, how the data is being used and, and, and these apps and things, especially as it pertains to women. So what are some of your biggest concerns about that around women? Uh, one of the big things I've seen with women is actually dating apps. So if that's, if that's something you are using, uh, often when you, when you take a picture, and again, unless you've turned it off, there's something called metadata. And metadata is information that's attached to every, all your files and all your digital files. So when you take a photograph, your phone is assigning the location of exactly where you are in that photograph. And when you post it on something like Instagram or Facebook, they strip that data out. But when you post it on some dating sites, some do and some don't, that data might still be there. So you're now putting yourself up as the woman who potentially lives alone 
with your address potentially in the photo. <laughs> and so that becomes a bit of a risk. Um, same thing happens a lot with Tinder. You can actually, they have, they have pre-programmed profiles and they'll triangulate in onto a single woman and they can pretty much within a hundred meters figure out where she is and then it's pretty easy to go find her. So I could happen to men too, but this particular risk seems to affect women more than it does men. Okay. So, uh, and last one, Facebook, it's a biggie. What do you recommend? So if you're already on Facebook, to say the damage is already done, the damage is already done. Like whatever data you have since put on Facebook, whoever you've connected to, whatever photos you've shared in the past, Facebook already has them. They're not giving them up. Um, even if you deleted your account today, they are still going to maintain a file that has everything on you. So if you find value in the service, if you're connecting with people you haven't talked to in a long time, it is worth staying on Facebook to do that. But you need to acknowledge that everything you put on there, even if it's in a messenger chat, one-on-one, -on -one, if you are putting your children's names or ages or places you want to go, there is, it is being collected by Facebook and it could also be analyzed by Facebook. So if in a personal chat you say you're looking to buy a new Hyundai and all of a sudden you see Hyundai ads, that's not a coincidence. That is Facebook using your data to turn around and advertise to you what they think that you want. Right. Because as you said, if you're not paying for the product, you are the product. You are the product. Excellent. So if people want to connect with you, where can they go? Uh, you can visit my webpage is binarytattoo.com. I'm on Twitter at binarytat. I'm on Instagram at binarytat. Um, or you can reach me at cat at binarytattoo.com. Okay, wonderful. Thank you so much for joining me today. You're welcome. Closer I am Okay, and we have a lot to get into with entertainment this week, so let's jump in. Fatal Affair. Oh, God. Do you remember, on Netflix, do you remember back in the late 80s and early 90s, there were tons of films on TV films about stalking? Yeah, like Single White Female, and there was one with oh, Glenn Close, uh, that kind of thing. Lopez. They were everywhere because stalking was suddenly big news, and of course, that, you know, anti-stalking laws were laid in... Uh, mid 90s so this film starring Mia Long and Omar Epps is a bad guy is a complete throwback to those films it follows the formula step by step beat by beat nothing new happens you're like yeah uh-huh yeah check check yeah it's so aggravating I was hoping you know 20 years later, there might be something interesting to add to this whole debate but apparently not so it's a total stinker Okay, well, sorry. Did, I'm sorry, you, Nia. I like her. She's really cool. But well, you did send me one that I have to tell you. I don't know if it's just the mood I was in watching it, but it just got me right in the feels. It's Working Man, and I yes. think it's going to resonate with so many people right now. Well, yeah, like number one, the Rust Belt is the scene of this. Um, he's lost his job. The factory's closed. The last factory in the town is closed. Everyone's out of work. Uh, but also, you know, COVID has caused so many job losses. So this entire community of people without jobs uh, and this elderly man who was not that far from retirement um, decides that he's just going to keep going to work against all, you know, in evidence that there's going to be a job for him. He lets himself in. He cleans the place meticulously. And this goes on for weeks. And then all of a sudden, another guy shows up to help him. And they decide to fulfill the outstanding orders um, that the factory owns. And if they do this, maybe they'll get paid. And then eventually everyone comes back and they get zooming along and they get paid. And then all these millennial factory owners come in and say, you can't do this, but you know, you have to follow the story. It is so, it's like an elegy. It's like, oh, a nostalgic throwback to the days when people had jobs for life. Yeah, that's something that we don't see very often anymore. And it really just, the acting just seems so raw and authentic that I just felt every second of that trailer. So that's definitely on my list. You're going to love it. You're going to yeah. love it. And this Peter Garrity, he has, his face is completely expressionless. And yet he gets it over 
Oh, it's brilliant. Okay, brilliant. so tell me about uh, tell me about Kay Ballard. Oh, Kay Ballard. I don't know if you remember her from the Mothers-in-Law, which was a Desilu show in the 70s or whatever, maybe the 80s. Um, anyway, she was full of beans and quite loud. And I didn't know she had been a huge star in the vaudeville circuit on uh, New York supper clubs on um, uh, early television and radio. She could do anything. She sang better than Judy Garland. She was so funny. It was out of this world. She played classical flute and violin, and she managed to work all of this into her act. Now, people in the film that she talks about or people who talk about her cover the gamut of huge stars back in the day. Even Anne Margaret's there, which is so cool to see. But the best part of this film is it's so uplifting. She had, she died last year, she had such tremendous spirit and joie de vivre, and nothing got her down. And it's full of music and comedy and, and oh, God. Just what we need. So where can we find that? On VOD. Wonderful. Okay, I want to know about Sunlit Night because I think this looks so quirky and yeah. uh, entertaining. Do you know Jenny Slate? I, I didn't, no. Okay, well, she, this, is, this role is not, nothing she's done before. She's generally a very sarcastic comedy writer. Um, you know, very uh, sort of mean, mean and, and observ observational and uh, not someone you really want to know. But for some reason, you know, it took with audiences. In this film, she plays an artist who wants to get out of her home situation. And so she manages to get a placement in Arctic Norway working with, a, with an artist. So she heads out there and it's, this film is full of poignancy and drama and she's very vulnerable in this. There's none of that snark. And she, she fights with the artist. So she wants to go home, but she can't bear the thought she stays. And then she meets a couple of Americans. Zach Ganafliakis plays a, a Viking reenactor. He's from Cincinnati, he, but he lives over there. <laughs> and Jillian uh, Anderson, Anderson shows up as a Russian businesswoman. It's so quirky and emotional. And to my mind, the highlight of it is the girl she spies working at the dairy case in the local convenience store. And she looks like these classical Zaftig uh, artist models from the early classic era. So she paints her and she finds her love of art coming back. And it's just a, a terrific film a total reversal for Jenny Slate. And yes, you'd love it. Okay, wonderful. Well, we don't have long left. We just have a few seconds. The secret she keeps, what do you think? Yes oh, no? it's a, it's a, it's a, sur a pregnancy thriller. <laughs> and she, she was Lady Edith from Downton Abbey. And she plays a completely different type here. And so where, is, where is that on? Interview. Uh, Brickbox. Okay, and you've got an interview coming I'm up with her? now, I'm sorry. Yes, I have an interview with her, and it'll be on the site. Okay, wonderful. So for all of, all of this and more, people can go to whatshesaidtalk.com, and we'll see you next week with more amazing entertainment. Have a great week, Candace. Stick around. More What She Said with Candace Sampson coming up on 105.9 The Region. Welcome back to What She Said with Candace Sampson on 105.9 The Region. Our next segment is brought to you by Breville Canada, and today we are talking all about blusing with Karina Odorico, Breville's product expert in Canada. Welcome to the show, Karina. Thank you so much, Candice. I'm so happy to I be have, here. I have a few uh, Breville appliances, and what I love most about them is how innovative they are. Like they take you know, a couple of products and make one amazing product. So like, for example, my three-in-one uh, air fryer, microwave, and convection oven is a favorite, right? <laughs> yes. So let's talk about the blooser, though, because that's really ingenious as well. Yes. Um, Breville, so 
Brevel's made an uh, engineered in Australia, um, and it's been in existence for 88 years. And during that time, we really focus on consumer needs. We want to make things that are easy, versatile, some products that consumers can use on a daily basis. But we also take into account the pain points that consumers go through. So we really focus on, you know, what you know, the like those hurdles that they go through when they're creating a, a recipe. So, um, and we also focus a lot now on multifunctionality. So as you said, for the, uh, the product that you have that air fries, it, it can bake, it can grill, it can do many things. Consumers are really limited with space on their counter at home. Um, counter space is a real estate. You want to put the things on there that you use on a daily basis. Um, so when it comes to juicing and blending, um, maybe a consumer, they just want to choose one, one appliance, something that they're going to use every day. But again, they don't want to miss out on those trends um, and also recipes that um, they would make on a daily basis. Uh, so what we did was um, develop the blucer. So blucer is a made-up word from, uh, from Breville. Uh, it's a combination of the word blending and juicing. Um, and it's a way to incorporate fresh juices into a blended mix. So um, it utilizes the same base. Uh, we have juicer parts and we have blending parts, well, the blending jug. Uh, so you can juice directly into the jug and then bring the jug back onto the base and then incorporate ingredients that you typically wouldn't be able to juice, such as an avocado, a banana, nuts, seeds, or even protein powders and ice. So it's, it's a really great way to make your own fresh juice versus going to the grocery store and purchasing um, you know, a pasteurized juice that's in a Tetra Pak or even the refrigerator where all the nutrients are stripped um, and then put back in. Uh, so it's a really great uh, versatile way to incorporate those fresh uh, ingredients into the mix. And I use mine. I what I love mine for is uh, at the end of the week. I always have you know Monday me is much more ambitious, uh, and <laughs> sometimes by the end of the week Friday me is like wait a minute I have all this fruit I never used, um, mm -hmm. and so I will throw in the apples, the oranges, the pineapple, the things that I had other intentions for, and just juice them uh, and use it up. You know, even like those containers of spinach that I you know yes. I buy, I will juice that. So it's perfect. Oh. That's for sure. Um, you're right. And we're also getting into the best season of the year, which is summer. And we're, we're going to have an abundance of fresh fruits and vegetables. And you're right. With the leafy greens, they're in season now. So it's a really great way to incorporate those leafy greens. And that's either you can juice them if you want, um, or you can blend them into, into your smoothie. So somebody is listening to, the, to us talking about this at home, and they're like, okay, you know, I'm thinking about it, but you know, and I'm thinking about giving this blucer some real estate, but how do they, you know, how are they going to use it? So what are some everyday uses for the blucer? Um, it can be used throughout the day. Um, I typically make smoothies in the morning. Um, if I feel like just juicing, I will just juice. And uh, for for some of the viewers, if they are not clear on what juicing is versus blending, juicing extracts and separates the uh, juice from the pulp in, in the fruit and vegetable. Whereas with blending, you can incorporate those the pulpy ingredients. Um, so in the morning, you can, you can start with a fresh green juice if you like, or um, I really love making smoothie bowls. Uh, smoothie bowls with uh, frozen berries and um, fresh juice blended into the mix and then top it with sliced fruit um, or bananas and other nuts and seeds. And then over lunchtime, I can again um, use the blending part and make a really great uh, salad dressing or um, puree uh, hummus uh, and make a nice hummus and roasted red pepper dip and spread that over um, a cooked sliced um, uh, sweet potato. I've been seeing that a lot lately and it's, it's really nice. And then you can top it with more uh, chickpeas if you want it on the top. And also really 
um, great to blend some fresh herbs as well or chop uh, some fresh herbs. And then over dinner, you can prepare a marinade for a, like a leg of lamb if, if you were ambitious enough to, to cook a leg of lamb. Or sometimes barbecuing grilled meats um, can be very bland if it's just salt and pepper and you can make a really nice uh, vinaigrette with fresh herbs to kind of kick up those flavors as well. And then when we get into the weekends, right, because we've been so good Monday to Friday, um, I love creating new fresh cocktails uh, over the weekend. Um, so I try to blend, um, sorry, I try to juice some fresh lime or uh, citrus uh, juices and then incorporate them into a, a cocktail as well. I can also make it icy by throwing in some ice and making it kind of slushy too. So yeah, you know, one of the yeah. things that I do in the morning is I make, you know, like a virgin pina colada. In the morning. Oh, very good. And then I'll throw, but I'll make a double batch and I'll throw it in the, uh, the refrigerator in that craft. Cause it's so, it's so portable. I will just put it yeah. in the fridge and then in the evening, whip it out, throw it back on the base and blend in a little rum and it becomes an evening. Pina hey, colada. That's a really great idea. I've got to, I've got to think about that one. <laughs> Yeah, uh, just to let you know, I've thought about it all. You can also do that with that da strawberry daiquiris in the morning, strawberry daiquiris in the evening. Uh, let's talk about juicing for one second, though, because I remember yes. when I was researching juicers a long time ago, I remember falling down this rabbit hole on the internet between what was better. Was it better to go with, you know, cold pressed or centrifugal? And, and so is there one that's better than the other? Uh, no, not necessarily. Um, they all do the same thing. They're designed to extract uh, or separate the pulp from the juice. They're just different methods of doing so. We carry centrifugal juicers, so it's, um, it's a process where it separates the juice from the pulp. There's a basket with, um, a, it's a fine mesh basket with blades that will um, process the fruits and the vegetables in a very, very fast manner. We carry a slow juicer as well that has an auger, so it kind of slowly chews the food and uh, extracts everything, but it's a very slow process, and in that um, may take some time. But it's really good at um, extracting the juice for, for, from small berries and leafy greens, and then in the commercial industry, there is the hydraulic press that presses the fruits and vegetables. What the enemy is, is oxygen. So once your juice is exposed to the air, um, it will uh, begin to oxidize and nutrients will start to evaporate. Um, so another key thing is you want to ensure that um, the less exposed to the air uh, will result in a more nutrient-dense beverage. So if you think about a slow juicer or a hydraulic press that's taking a very long time to extract the fruits and vegetables, chances are there's less nutrients in those methods versus centrifugal. Centrifugal is very fast. Um, it's not exposed to the air at, uh, at all. Um, and it goes in cold and comes out cold. So that's another myth that um, we hear a lot. Consumers may think that centrifugal juicers, which is a quick method, actually um, heats the fruits and vegetables as it's being um, juiced, but that is not true. And we've done extensive testing uh, to dispel those um, myths. So the heat transfer is actually less than one degree Celsius. Okay, so there's no nutrients lost then uh, either way, so that's that's good to know, and that's why it's so healthy yeah. for you, right? Is to is to get that juice uh, out. So if people exactly. want to know more about the blucer and the uses for it, where can they go? Um, go to our website breville.ca. You can find us on Instagram Breville Canada as well as Facebook Breville Canada. There's a ton of information. If you can also search uh, Blucer on YouTube, you'll come up with some really great uh, videos um, and demonstration and, and recipes as well. Okay, wonderful. Thank you so much for joining me. We'll put all these links up on the video that's gonna go out on social. Great, thank you. Thanks for your time today.
Joan Delfator has a PhD in English and an MS in clinical psychology from Penn State. Since retiring in 2014, she has been writing about living single by choice in a couples-oriented culture, particularly with respect to healthcare. A personal experience led her to investigate discrimination against unmarried cancer patients, and her findings were published in the New England Journal of Medicine and the Washington Post, among others. Her many presentations include an appearance on National Public Radio's All Things Considered, as well as a TEDx talk. For fun, she travels, is active in five clubs, goes out with friends, loves opera, and yes, she's single. Welcome to the show, Joan. Thank you. It is such a pleasure to have you. So why do you think there's such a stigma in our culture towards single people? I think it's largely a matter of habit. I really think that the attitudes people project towards single people are implicit. They're just assumed. So for example, if a married person says, I'm very, very happy, everyone says, I'm so happy for you. The single person says, I'm very, very happy. You either get, well, what about all the single people who are lonely and miserable? Or you get, well, I have this nice guy you might like to meet. And it's kind of like, which part of I don't want to be married was not clear. Yeah, it feels like we have this, this, this hang up where we think people just actually are, couldn't possibly be happy. Uh, but you say the opposite. You said lots of people are single and have f- fulfilling, happy lives, right? Uh, there's actually very solid psychological and sociological research showing that essentially lifestyle is a choice. It's not a competition. People, not only do people differ one person from another, but even within a lifetime, people differ in terms of what they need and what they can thrive on. So the idea that there's a one-size-fits-all model, you have a romantic partner, and for many people, you would also have to have children to be what they would consider normal. If you think about it, what is the probability that the entire human race is set up that way? In every generation in history, there have been people who clearly did better as single people. Somebody like uh, Louisa May Alcott or Jane Addams, who started the uh, Holmes movement. I think we need to allow more for individual differences than we have. But because, think about radio, television, um, songs, popular songs, movies, operas. There's an assumption that a happy ending means marriage. And the alternative is the soprano and sometimes the baritone end up dead. There really are more choices than that available. So when you start to research this then, what were your findings um, when it came to single people in uh, medical situations? What I found was that based on a database maintained by the National Cancer Institute, which is a U.S. government office, it tracks over 10 million cancer patients. So plenty of data. Based on those data, your marital status in and of itself is an independent predictor of whether you will receive aggressive cancer care. Currently married patients are significantly more likely to receive surgery and radiotherapy than patients who are divorced, widowed, separated, or never married. And why is that? What is the reasoning behind that? According to more than 30 years of medical articles on this topic, it's because single people don't want aggressive treatment and would not be able to handle it. However, the medical researchers who make those statements are making them based on their personal beliefs. They offer no data to support that. And in fact, the data go the other way. Researchers at Harvard, the Mayo Clinic, and other top institutions looked at more than a million patients to see who declines surgery. These are cancer patients. What they found was that 0.52% of unmarried patients declined surgery when it was offered. So these articles that say as a given, oh, single people wouldn't want surgery. That is not true. Single people can be happy. Uh, we are putting a lot of pressure on, the, uh, on, our, on our single people in life, and uh, that the medical system really needs to remove their personal biases towards them, correct? In the medical system, we can't expect doctors somehow to be immune as if they've been vaccinated against the biases that are in our culture. They're going to pick up the same beliefs other people do. A doctor who thinks that a patient who's not married doesn't want aggressive treatment 
is not trying to harm that patient. The doctor is acting on his or her honest beliefs. I think what we need to do is put it out on the table. I think especially where medical professionals are concerned, we cannot shame them for the implicit biases they have. It's like shaming them because they walk on only two feet and not on four. It's the way humans are built. And they're going to be the same as other people. We need to calm down, take a step back, take a deep breath, allow for the fact that our culture has these ideas and talk rationally and compassionately about where the evidence does not support the biases. And I think you, you hit the nail on the head there is bringing the conversation out into the open uh, and to speak compassionately with each other so that we can learn because when we're, we're defensive, we're not learning. Uh, so I absolutely agree with you. We recorded a longer podcast, so I encourage everybody to go listen to that because we really got into the sort of uh, expectations around being single. But if people want to find you on Twitter and connect with you, where can they find you? On Twitter, I'm at, at Joan Del Fator, and on Facebook, uh, Joan Del Fator on Facebook. Wonderful. We're going to put that up on the video that we put out on social. And thank you so much for joining me today, Joan. Thank you very much for inviting me. More with Candace Sampson and what she said coming up on 105.9 The Region. Welcome back to What She Said with Candace Sampson on 105.9 The Region. If you ask most people what their future was going to look like a year ago, you likely would have received a fairly straightforward answer about goals, work, travel, and retirement plans. Now that everything has changed, answering that same question is not as easy. Leah Zaidi is an awarding futurist and a senior associate at the Future Today Institute. She combines research with unhindered creativity and grounded organizational practice to imagine and realize new worlds. She's joining me today to share some insights into what our future might hold. Welcome to the show, Leah. Thank you for having me. So I guess the first question, you know, this is what she said. What do we see for women in the future? Yeah, so uh, issues like the pandemic can create and exasperate inequalities for women. And so we might see potential issues like uh, employment issues, setbacks for movements. And so the question now becomes, how do we help women uh, get through this crisis and come out stronger? And what are the systemic solutions that we can implement that will help get us there? And do you see sort of any trends um, developing for women in terms of work? Yeah, so we've seen some unfortunate trends at the beginning of the pandemic. So we know that 1.5 million women lost jobs over March and April. That was a 17% drop since February. And so the question now is, as jobs pick up again, whether or not we're going to see a reversal of that trend. And we know that there um, could potentially be some good news on that horizon, hopefully, as things start to open up. Okay, so we recorded a longer podcast and I encourage everybody to go listen to that because it's fascinating. But one of the things you mentioned in the podcast was that we are sort of in this release period right now. Mm -hmm. And um, I thought that was very interesting. So could you explain that please for people listening? Sure. Uh, so there's a model called the adaptive cycle, which is a helpful framework to look at COVID through. And so uh, think about it kind of like a forest. So we start off in an exploitation phase where there's lots of new species and they start to grow and interact with each other. Then those species enter a conservation period where things stabilize and are a little bit more grounded and, you know, predictable. And then they might go through a release period, which is something like a forest fire coming in and burning everything down and creating all sorts of chaos. And then out of that, we get a reorganization period that might bring new things together, new configurations, new things might arise. Um, and that's a cycle that, you know, we go through consistently. And so when we apply that to the systems that we've created, what COVID has done is come in and triggered that release. It's been like the forest fire ripping through everything. And so now the question becomes, you know, do we try to conserve what was there before the life that we had, the normal that we had? Um, are we going to implement strategies and policies to go back to that? Or are we going to allow things to go through the release period and reorganize? 
That doesn't necessarily mean what comes next is better, but that it's new, essentially. Okay, so what are you, what are you seeing uh, for the future in general then? Uh, and let's maybe just look at it in, um, in terms of Canada, because we, we cannot predict what's going to happen down south, I don't think, I, I don't think anybody can. <laughs> Yeah, and uh, you know it is a factor that has to be taken into account because we are going to be impacted by what happens in the states um, from a policy perspective, right down to things like border control. Um, so Canada has has done pretty well overall. It's done pretty well, all things given. And so what we hopefully can expect in the next little while is a rebuilding and a reopening that comes with um, you know solutions and strategies that uh, do heavy lifting and do double the work and so if we're going to go into things like infrastructure spend that we're also thinking about how that infrastructure could um, be green and renewables oriented and so that we are setting ourselves up for a better future by having gone through this crisis. Okay um, and just quickly you know you talked about there is sort of this connection between obviously this pandemic and and climate change. Mm -hmm. How do you see that moving forward? Uh, do you see that we will be working like are the governments acknowledging this this connection between climate change and pandemics? I think they are. Uh, there is that sort of awareness that you know this is um, a crisis that is a smaller scale crisis compared to what could potentially happen with climate change. And so now the question becomes, you know, how do we mitigate that future crisis and how do we learn from this current one to ensure that we're better off in the face of what could come next? And so that includes understanding, you know, the various cascading effects that a crisis like this can have and understanding how to create systemic solutions that can address that. Um, those things include uh, stuff like how political systems are destabilized, um, how infectious disease might play a role in climate change, how women's issues and domestic violence can become issues in the, in the context of climate change. So we're seeing like a microcosm of what could happen. And so it's a matter of learning and adjusting and evolving. Right. I mean, I, you know, you say this is like, you know, I guess on a, it could be worse, right? This could have been a much larger scale pandemic. Um, so this is really almost a test run to see how we will handle it in the future. Yeah, and that's exactly how people are describing it, especially in the scientific communities. So, um, yeah, this is this is the test. It's the litmus test for how we respond to climate change. Okay, so if people want to uh, find out more about you and sort of your writing, where can they find you? Uh, you can find me all over the internet. <laughs> so uh, my website is uh, leahzadie.com and you can uh, look me up there. I've got some work around COVID up as well that might be helpful to some of you. And um, you can also go on to the UNESCO website and hear what other women have to say about reimagining the future of COVID as well. Okay, wonderful. We're going to put those links up on the video that we put out on social. And I thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. That's it for What She Said this week. Be sure to follow me on What She Said Talk on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for videos of these interviews and more. Also, please subscribe to What She Said with Candace Sampson on Apple and Spotify for extended podcasts with Leia Zadie, Kat Kood, and Joan Delfatore. I'll be back next week with more What She Said on 105.9 The Region. Previous episodes of What She Said on 1059theregion.com.